Now, I talked about some of these characteristics that Americans typically like to apply to God to try to make God fit into our image, his behavioral characteristics, his political characteristics, you know, what are God's national characteristics. But specifically what the book addressed was the differences in Americans' views of God. For instance, 28% of Americans, according to this book, said they believe in an authoritative God. A God that is very judgmental, but doing so engaged in the world. So a God that's authoritative, but engaged. 22% said they believe in a benevolent God. A God that's good. A God that is loving, not stern. A God that is always for you and with you. All right, 22%, almost a quarter of us. Third category was those who believe in a critical God or a a judgmental God, if you will, a God who is simply looking from a distance to see what he can judge and when he can throw the hammer down. All right. The fourth category was a distant God. Okay, this is kind of the watchmaker idea that he set the universe in motion and then just stepped back to see what was going to happen. So he's uninvolved in that regard. Um, typically the book said that believers like this are less suspicious of science maybe than others would be. Um, and they cited, um, a, a kind of an observance that Benjamin Franklin made. And they said that many people who see God as distance would agree with Benjamin Franklin, that God is, that a God who is supremely perfect, as Franklin said, would not care one bit for an inconsiderable nothing such as man. So. We see God as benevolent, we see him as judgmental, we see him as a watchmaker who winds it up and lets it go, or we see him someone who is very good. Now, the conclusion of the book was this. Your view of God is going to determine your morality and your lifestyle. Your view of God will determine your morality and your lifestyle. If your God is authoritative or bossy or good or critical or judgmental or distant, you know, and and removed... The whole point I see in this is that we do all we can to make ourselves comfortable with God. Right? We want to be comfortable with God. And 1 Samuel 15 will blow that out of the water. All right? You should not be comfortable with the God that we see in 1 Samuel 15. All right? Let's see why that is the case. Follow along with me as we read. And I'm going to read the entire chapter, okay? Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I could stop right there and say that's the sermon. That's the point of everything that follows. God has sent his man... With his message, and the obligation is to hear and listen. It's that simple. All right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen 
and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. In verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head over the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amaleks, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah. And Saul went up to his house in Gilba of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it's a tough word too. We pray that your Holy Spirit will give us eyes of faith. To see and perceive and understand. Father, I pray that if there is someone here today who has not trusted in Jesus as their Lord. Lord, that person doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them. And they're not going to understand any of this apart from you doing a work in their heart. 
And so, Father, we pray for that. We pray that as we see stern words of judgment and we see God's righteous indignation on sin being poured out, that, Lord, we'd see ourselves as deserving of that. And then we'd see Jesus on the cross. We thank you for that. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So back in the beginning of chapter 15, we see a command of God that should conflict us. All right? If you're not in some way at least a little bothered by what we read in these first few verses, man, you've been watching too much TV and playing too many video games. Or maybe you're just lost. Because as we see this unfolding here, sometimes what we see in the Bible is hard to understand. And sometimes what we see in the Bible that we think we understand is difficult to read. It can be, frankly, offensive and embarrassing. Because a world around us reads passages like this, pulls them out of the context of Scripture, pulls them out of the context of all of God's redemptive plan and purposes. And like Richard Dawkins, the famous evolutionary biologist and author and atheist, he calls God a moral monster because of passages like this. In fact, he says in one of his books, what makes my jaw drop is that people today should base their lives on such an appalling role model as Yahweh. And even worse, that they should bossily try to force the same evil monster on the rest of us. Passages like this are the reason that Richard Dawkins would say that God is a moral monster. And I, I, I can't take the time because I do want us to get through this chapter today. I can't really take the time to, to spend on this. I can, I can give you some resources on it. But when we see this command in the context of the total biblical record, God-redemptive story, then it begins to make sense. If we pull it out of that context, it's tough, it's offensive, it makes us uncomfortable, and in fact would repel us away from a God that seeks to draw us in. If we do that, and we cannot do that, we must not do that. God's command to Saul to utterly abolish the Amalekites is difficult. And that's why some people want to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament differently. Oh, I love the God of the New Testament because he is a God of love. You can have the God of the Old Testament because he's a God of wrath. Jesus would never let us make that distinction. Jesus did not dismiss. In fact, he elevated and even magnified the judgment passages of God, the judgment character of God. Jesus talked about it much. He held up Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of what we want to avoid for all of eternity. So Jesus never backed off at all of the judgment of God that we see in Scripture. So let's just clarify a couple of things in our minds as we think about this command that was given there to Saul on that day. First off, God is the maker and ruler of all things and has authority over all things, period. Period. It's one of the reasons the writer of Hebrews says that by faith we believe that God created the world. Because that essential characteristic of God and that essential truth about this world gives God authority over all of it. Absolute sovereign authority. That's the first thing we need to note as we think about this. Secondly, that he is not only the creator of it, he's the ultimate ruler and judge of it. And he will do that well. He will do that well. As Abraham stood and negotiated with God, if you will, over the, over the well-being of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham recognized this, and we read it in Genesis 18. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. That's an important note. God is not putting the righteous to death with the wicked. Abraham went on. So that the righteous fare with the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God is creator, sovereign creator over everything, and he is the just judge. We may not understand that justice. We may not be able to make much sense of it sometimes or be comfortable with it. But he is the creator and he is the just judge. With that in mind, then as we see this unfolding, we have to be careful to not allow the world to shape our understanding of it. Because this is not about who is moral and who is not. It's not about who's a Jew 
or part of Israel and who is not. It's about worship. It's about worship. When God gave the command early in, the, in, the, in his walk with his people, he warned them about the idolatry of the nations to which they would go into, the land that they would go into. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God gave Israel this explicit reason why it was necessary for them to cleanse that land of the idolaters. Why, why would God give this command? And here's what it says. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods and cause you to sin against the Lord. It's about worship. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about morality. It's about worship. And God's actions here are not ethnic cleansing. It is not ethnic cleansing. The Amalekites were enemies of God. They had been enemies of God's people. They had demonstrated this and had continued to demonstrate it. And after an extended time of patience and mercy, God said, they've gone over the limit. He's the one that determines that limit, not us or anybody else. Listen to what he said earlier as he was talking to Abraham about him going in and taking over the land. God told Abraham that his descendants would be taken into slavery in Egypt and that they would remain there 400 years. What's significant about that 400-year period? Well, God said, for the iniquity of the Amorites, and you can include Amorites, Canaanites, Jebusites, all the ites, under this. He said, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete, meaning it's not reached that point where there's no turning back. So God determines that in his own mind. He determines that in his own purposes. And he is patient in dealing with idol worshipers and giving them opportunities to turn and repent. But they reach the point where they would not. And it is the mercy of God that gives that opportunity for repentance and faith. Remember Rahab? All of the people, all of the people in the promised land had heard what God had done for behalf, on behalf of Israel. Rahab acknowledges that. We've all heard what your God did. And Rahab alone turned in faith to that God and was delivered from it. All right? So it's not ethnic cleansing. It's, it's not even a holy war. Sometimes people call it a holy war. That model has been used throughout history to justify an ungodly act. But that's not what we see here. God in his mercy allows time for repentance. But they do not do that. In fact, he, God says later on that I, I told you to go devote to destruction the sinners. That's what they were. And the sins of the fathers were passed on to their children. And God is the judge over this. And we have to trust that. But here's the deal before I move on. The destruction of the Canaanites and the Amalekites and all of these ites that we see here should, by the work of the Holy Spirit and in light of the gospel, cause us to pause and say, this is a preview of hell. This is a picture of what God's wrath and judgment is going to look like for all of eternity. And apart from God's grace and Christ given to me, I'm there with them. I'm under the sword. I'm under the judgment. I'm devoted to destruction. That's what the word actually means. Haram is one of the words that's used. It's the ban. Sometimes if you read the ban. Well, the ban was these people are devoted to me, God says, in that I've brought them for destruction. I've brought them for judgment. I've brought them as, as, as the recipients of my wrath. And it, it's difficult. It's hard to read through that. You know, we go, Wow. But the wow should be as we look in the mirror. And God's wrath and glory are seen in his holiness, in his justice, and in his mercy. And he will be praised for it for all of eternity if you remember our study in the book of Revelation. God will be praised for all of eternity for his holiness and his justice and his grace and his goodness. That all unrighteous sinners who would turn to Jesus in faith are delivered from the ban. Delivered from that destruction. And so as we read this, we ought to see the cross. We ought to see the cross. 
And we should. We should recognize the severity of it. Now, notice what comes next. I'll touch on this as we make application in just a minute. So we see the command of God that conflicts us. Then we see the sin of Saul that should convict us, should convict us of our own sin. And this takes up the bulk of the passage, starting there in verse 4, where Saul summons the people. He shows mercy there to the Kenites. And as they leave, then they go in, and Saul has a tremendous military victory. Remember last week? The summary of Saul's reign that's given for us there in chapter 14, when he had taken over the kingship and he fought against all the enemies, and he was successful on the battlefield. Any military strategist, I'll get it out in a minute, anybody would look at this and say, wow, Paul, Saul just had a tremendous victory on the field. Because he did exactly, in some ways, what God had commanded him to do, but in other ways he did exactly the opposite of what God had called him to do. And so this is a tragedy. We need to see it as such. This is a human tragedy caused by human sin. And that's what we see unfolding on the page before us there. Now, there's a lot of things going on. There's pride. There's misplaced fear. There's self-will. There's selfishness. There's all of these are going in. But when it boils down to it, what is the essence of what happened in the rest of this chapter? Hmm? Well, look at what it says in verse 22. Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen is better than, or implied in there, to listen than the fat of rams. Here's here's what happened. Saul was given clear instruction on what to do. And he did not do what he was commanded to do. That's it. He just didn't obey what God had called him to do. Instead of obedience, what do we see? Well, instead of obedience, we see a desire for personal fame. It's pretty amazing to me that when Samuel comes looking for Saul, he's told, well, Saul has set up a monument for himself there in verse 12. So Saul is victorious on the battlefield and immediately sets up a monument to himself. I don't know what that monument was, and it does not matter. We know what the purpose was. It was a monument to himself. So instead of being obedient to what God had called him to do, he was seeking personal acclaim, personal fame, if you will. Which is really ironic in one sense, because he understood from where he had come. I mean, that's one of the things that Samuel points out to him. Look down at verse 17. He's pointing out to him that, you know, the Lord called you out. You were little in your own eyes. You are little. There was an element of humility to Saul, at least at the beginning. You were, you were little in your own eyes, and God called you out to be the head over all the tribes of Israel. He anointed you as king over Israel. And if we go back and read, what, did Saul, what was Samuel's command to Saul? You and the people are to listen to the voice of your God. It's that simple. Listen and obey. And instead of obedience, he seeks personal fame. Instead of obedience, what we see happening, and I believe in Saul and in the people. Now remember, whose fault is all this? Huh? What, is, what does Saul say about whose fault it is? Well, down the, the people took the spoil. I'm, I'm not sure how this conversation may have gone. I, I can just, Samuel shows up. Saul says, I've done exactly what the Lord told me to do. And in the background we hear, eh, eh, eh. all these animals are making these sounds. And Samuel goes, what? If you were obedient, what is that sound I hear? It's just a, it's, it's really neat to see how this interaction plays out here. Um, here's this pride and this, this trying to divert, you know, the blame. The people took the spoil. And what's interesting about that, and the people obviously did play a role in that, but Saul is the leader. He is the general. He has accomplished a victory on one level. And then, but look at what verse 19 says. All right? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Pounce. That's an interesting word. And that same word is used in the previous chapter 
when the people took the livestock from that victory and pounced on it, killed it, and consumed the flesh with the blood in it. They were driven by their appetite in the last chapter. They're driven by their appetite today. Because commentators will tell us that this, this, these animals were intended to be offered as a peace offering. Well, the peace offering is the offering that the one offering it gets to consume. So we've got a buffet before us that's bellowing and bleeding. And so they're driven instead of by obedience, by personal appetite, personal pleasure, wanting to please themselves rather than pleasing the Lord. And so they're driven by their appetites. Now look at what comes next. In verse 24, Saul in some level seems to capitulate to the charge that's given against him. I have sinned. And I have transgressed, he says, the commandment of the Lord. And he gives the reason for it. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Instead of obedience, Saul says, I feared man. I feared what they would do or say instead of fearing what God would do or say. Peer pressure. I'm going to go along, get along, because those peers in front of me are putting pressure on me. And Saul feared the displeasure of his peers more than he feared the displeasure of God. You might want to write that down because that's a big problem. Instead of obedience, we fear men rather than fearing God. And instead of obedience to God's word and being guided by God's word. We want the world's wisdom or, if you will, we'll just get that wisdom and that guidance any place we can find it. An interesting thing that Samuel confronts Saul with. He sees the reality of his sin as God sees the reality of it. So go back and look at verses 22 and 23. Saul, here's the bottom line. God's delight is not in offerings. God's delight is in obedience, and you've not done that. Not only has he not obeyed, but look at what's going on underneath that lack of obedience. Verse 23. We see some words here that should cause us to really want to pause and look into them. We see the word rebellion. We see the word divination. We see the word presumption, iniquity, and idolatry. That's serious stuff. That's not just... I mean, on one level, we might want to, golly, back off a little bit, Samuel. What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. It's idolatry. It's breaking that first commandment that God gave you there on the mountaintop. And how is it that Saul did this? Well, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read you this. And later on, we're going to see Saul visit a witch. And seek guidance and information from her through a seance. Okay? So what we see here is the root of what bears fruit later on in Saul's life. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God's giving these clear instructions to his people. And here's the bottom line. You're to be different. You don't worship who they worship, what they worship. You don't live the way they live. You don't identify with them. Part of the whole idea of the ban was to protect God's people from this influence. But Israel did not do what God told them to do, and that influence lived on. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Thou shalt not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Well, duh. We're not going to offer our children in the fire. God says you're not to do that. Well, who would, who would argue with that? Equal in the same sentence, in the same prohibition as this. Or anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or anyone who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. What's the bottom line in divination? Divination is wanting to know what to do. I want to know what to do. I want to make a decision. I need to know what's the best route. What's the best thing I need to do here? And I'm going to do that in ways contrary or 
at least not even look at God and his word to see what he wants me to do. And that's what was going on here underneath this disobedience. God said through Samuel, you're trying to go your own way. Your disobedience is based on not what God has said, but you're going to consult another source. And here, Saul, you consulted yourself. You just did what you thought was best. And maybe what popular opinion thought was best. One writer said, disobedience of God's word puts our own wisdom in the place of God. It insults God then as the only reliable source of wisdom. It's a small deal, God. I can handle this one. No, it's not. It's not a small deal. And to not consult God is saying, I don't need to consult God. And to say, I don't need to consult God says, I know what's best. And to say, I know what's best puts me in God's place. And that's what Saul was doing. Instead of obedience, he was being guided by anything and everything else other than God's word. And in the end, he is confronted with the reality of being an idolater. Listen to what one writer said. When God says one thing and we consult the little wizard of our own wisdom and then stubbornly choose to go our own way, we are idolaters. And we've not only chosen to consult ourselves as an alternative to God, we have thus become guilty of divination. We've gone beyond that. And we actually esteem the direction of our own mind over God's mind. And we're guilty of idolatry. And worst of all, it's the idol of our own self. That's what was going on in these pages. A key word throughout the whole passage is the word listen. It's nine times in chapter 15, the word listen or a derivative of that word is, is in play. That's what it boils down to. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And it's from that love relationship and that obedience that fruit grows and flows, as we read in John 15. There's one more point that I want to bring out in this section. And I kind of skipped over it. But... Look at Samuel's initial reaction to what was going on. God said, I regret that I made Saul king. And it says that Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night in verse 11. Was Samuel angry with God? Was he angry with what he saw unfolding before him? Samuel had thought Saul was the guy because that's who God had told him to go to. And now all of a sudden, God seems to have changed his mind. I'll talk about that in just a second. Samuel's angry. I think he's probably angry with God, frustrated. I'm sure he's angry with Saul. Here's the thing that I take as an application point from this. Sin should grieve us. It should grieve us when we see it in the mirror. It should grieve us when we see it on TV. It should grieve us when we see the rainbow flag. It should grieve us when we see our faith politicized. It should grieve us. And instead, what we often want to do is take up the sword and carry out the ban. We want to be the means of God's judgment. Instead of letting the window of God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit break our hearts. And grieve us over the sin that we see. Samuel was grieved. He was angry. But he was obedient. I love that about this man. One other thing I want us to see as we look at this. I want us to see the delight of God that should compel us. And this, I don't, okay, I'm going to have to hustle through this. Because I, I was thinking about this earlier this week as I was preparing the message. And I wanted to say at the beginning, and I just didn't, you need to have your thinking caps on because we're going into some deep stuff into the character of God. Deep stuff. That will not allow us to be comfortable with Him. And part of that is the emotion of God. You ever think about God having emotion? Well, what we have here is a picture of the character of God that's put in language that we can understand. Our God is a complex emotional being. But those emotions are not like ours. 
We need to recognize that. They're different from ours. Even though the terms used, the descriptive terms, describe our emotions even as they're being used to describe God's emotions. Now, one of those emotions or one of those things that jumps off the page here, I hope you caught this. In verses 10 and 11, the word of the Lord came to Samuel and God said, I regret that I've made Saul king. The King James Version of the Bible, the King James Version, I love what the King James Version says because it, it uses the word repent there. It repenteth me that I have made Saul king. Well, what is repentance? I mean, we've used it a million times in gospel presentations. Repentance means to change direction. To turn from seeking after your own self and your own sin and turning and pursuing and seeking God. So does it mean that when God repents, he recognizes, oh man, I blew that. I got to turn around and go the other way. Or does regret mean, and the dictionary would say it does, that when we choose poorly between options, we regret that we didn't choose one way over the other and wish we could go back and do it over. Is God saying, I need a mulligan? I wish I could go back and do it over. If I could, I would do it differently. Is that what God is saying? I don't want anything to do with that God, if it is. Because when else will he change his mind? When else might he decide he messed up and need a redo? That's not what, that's not what this means. Because that is affirmed later on in the passage. Look at verse 20, 29. Samuel says, the glory of Israel, I love that. In my Bible, it's capitalized. That's a title for God, the glory of Israel. Will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So which is it? (laughs) He regrets that he made Saul king, and yet God does not have regret or lie? Well, again, what we have here. If you want to write this word down and look it up, I, I'm not going to probably be able to spell it. We've used the word anthropomorphism before. The word anthropomorphism means to take anthro, something that has to do with God, and so, excuse me, something that has to do with man, and give that characteristic or that attribute to God. Use it to describe God. Anthropomorphism, when we talk about the eyes of God, the ears of God, the hands of God, the feet of God, or whatever it may be, we're taking a human characteristic and applying it to God. Well, if you take that same idea and apply the pathos, human emotion, to God, then you kind of use that same word there, and it's an anthropopathism. We're taking the emotion of man and using it to describe God. But that's not to bring God down to our level. Listen, this is God's gracious revelation. God loves us enough and wants to reveal himself enough that he chose to use human language to help us understand what cannot be understood. And so God uses words that we would understand. He uses words to help us. One writer said the astonishing thing is that God so enters into his involvement with his creation, in particular humanity, and even more particularly with his people, that their failures and successes affect him. God is affected by what we do. He is not changed by what we do, but he is affected by it. And so we can see, so we can see how hugely sin affects God, he uses words that we can understand. So, our God is immutable. That means he does not change, okay? We need to understand that. God does not wish he could get a do-over. That's not what the text is saying. When God told Moses, I am who I am, that meant he is timeless, unchanging, and eternal, okay? Psalm 102 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same. Your years have no end. God said in Jeremiah 4, I will not turn back. I will not relent. James, even in the New Testament, remember what he said about God there? There is no shadow of turning with him. No variation or change in him. So God is unchanging. But at the same time, we see the Lord verbalize for us so we can understand his heart, words that make it seem like. He says, I regretted that I made man. 
before he flooded the earth. Does that mean he wished he had not done it? No, it means this grieves me deeply. I want my people to understand the depth of my grief as I see man make bad decisions and turn from me and rebel against me. In Exodus chapter 32, he relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That, so, and the King James says he repented of that, meaning he saw what was going on in the lives of his people and he verbalized what he had sovereignly chosen to do. Again, it's just a grace, a gift of grace for him. In Jonah, God saw what they did, how they had turned from their evil way, and God relented on the disaster that he was going to do to them. Remember Jonah? He was ready to take up the sword. And God showed mercy. So God is immutable, but words are used in the Scriptures to help us understand how human reactions affect God's emotions. And these words help us see that, okay? Here's what John Calvin said. He called this God's lisping. How did he come up with that? I have no idea. But he said, he called this repentance, if you will, or this regret of God, God's lisping. And he said, the lisping is meant to communicate his profound displeasure at sin. It doesn't mean something in him has changed, but that something he created has changed. And he expresses his disappointment in words that we can grasp. So one emotion, if you will, that's, re- that's revealed to us here is God's, the depth of God's response to human actions. Okay? It affects him. But the other thing I see as I close is God's delight. In verse 22, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings as in sacrifices? Does God delight? What is delight? I mean, how would you define delight? It's joy. It's exuberance. It's happiness. It's celebration. I mean, I can think of all things that describe delight. And the word delight here is used to describe God's response to faithful obedience. So here's the question. Do we want to cause God to be delighted? Or to cause His heart to be impacted by our disobedience? Because I think this text teaches us that both of those things are a reality. The delight of God is something that I see all the way through Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says, I'm going to make you prosperous. The fruit of your womb and the fruit of your cattle and all those things. Because it says in Deuteronomy 30 verse 9, the Lord will take delight in prospering you as he prospered your fathers. That was his promise of obedience. Later on, it says in the book of Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Nor let the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. He understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And listen to this next sentence, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. In a few weeks we'll look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is that psalm of David when he is confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. And he says, you delight In my inner being. You delight in wisdom in the inner parts. Church, let's walk out of this place today. Intent to bring God great joy. To delight Him. So just think about what Saul sinned and did. That grieved the heart of God. And just take the opposite. God is thrilled. Okay? God is thrilled. He's delighted when we seek to glorify Him instead of ourselves. God is thrilled. He is delighted when we seek to please Him as opposed to pleasing others or ourselves. God is thrilled. He delights when we fear Him, when we reverence Him, and when we make decisions based on that fear and that reverence. God is thrilled. He delights when we seek Him and cry out for His guidance and we pray and seek His face because we don't know what to do. That thrills Him. And He's quick to answer. And give us direction. God is thrilled. He's delighted when we worship Him and Him alone and treasure Him above all things. So, let me just close with kind of an overarching application that covers all of this. The ban, if you will, God's clear instruction to clear the land of those things which would cause His people to stumble and fall. Understand the big picture. In the beginning, God had creation 
He had, he had the garden. He created man to inhabit it and rule as, as under, under, under princes, as to serve under his sovereign guidance. We're called to steward and lead under him. Sin broke that. God immediately set out the plan that he determined before the foundation of the world to restore and recreate. And that involves a people, that involves a place, and that involves him leading and ruling in that place. Where there will be no sin and no sinners. Remember Revelation. That's, that's how it's going to end. And that's how it was in the beginning. And that flow of that redemptive purpose from God's creation and fall to his stepping in and bringing about the means of reconciliation and salvation and moving toward that rebuilding, that recreation where it's even better than before. Here's the deal. God has called us as new covenant believers to proclaim the salvation that is, a, that is available in Christ and to do so clearly Speaking the truth in love, calling sin what it is, but doing so in grace and in humility, doing so thankful that we are no longer under the ban, that we are no longer facing destruction because of our sin, but that Jesus has taken that on himself on the cross. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to step into this broken, hurting world. That's so, that's so relevant this month. As we step into the quagmire of Pride Month. I mean, I'm telling you, it couldn't be more relevant what we see here in 1 Samuel 15. Because so often those who claim to be Christians want to take up the sword. I mean, for crying out loud, I'm going to be careful here, but if you're in support of what the president of Uganda and the leaders of Uganda just did, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand that God has not called us as followers of Christ to condemn to death those who make sinful choices. We're called to proclaim the truth of the gospel. We're not called to diminish the reality of sin. But we cannot stand up and say, because someone makes sinful choices or even has chosen a sinful lifestyle, that they deserve to die. That's on God. Now, yes, the government, I understand the role of the government. I understand all that. And we can discuss this more if you want to. But here's my point in this, especially in regard to Pride Month. Our first motive, as Jesus tells us, is love. But it's not the world's definition of love. Okay? We cannot go there. We cannot let the world tell us what love is. The world has swallowed the lie of Satan that love is whatever I want it to be and however I want to define it. And that my understanding of who I am is what I want myself to be, not how God has created me to be. And it is not love to go along with that. It is not love to in any way seem to affirm that. So our views of love, whatever they must be, must be guided and directed by love. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. So we let the gospel define our love, not the world. Secondly, as we love, we live and speak out the truth. That's so important this month. As, as, as followers of Christ, as people of the book, as we call ourselves, when we see our classmates or our colleagues decide that they need to approve in some way what's going on around us in the culture, we cannot do that. We cannot affirm that. Because that is not walking with the Lord and it is not living out the truth of the gospel and that transformed life that God has called us to. Who we are outside of Christ should compel us to remind people of what is available for us in Christ. Here's what I mean by that. If you want to turn or just jot this reference down, I'll finish with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 9, Paul speaks to the sin of homosexuality. He also speaks to the sin of greed and drunkenness. And revilers and swindlers and adulterers and idolaters and sexually immoral. And he does it in the same sentence. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. 1 Samuel 15 tells me that God's judgment is sure and certain. I see that in the whole record of Scripture. God's judgment and wrath are a sure thing. But it's His thing. Not mine. And living in that reality says that He's going to be praised for that for all of eternity. And right now, my responsibility is not to met out punishment. My responsibility is proclamation. My responsibility is to practice my faith, live it out in holiness before the world around me. And so proclaiming the good news of the gospel, that sin is real, that punishment is real, and that grace is real, that God has made a way for us to be reconciled to Him, to be free from the condemnation and the wrath that is coming. That's the good news in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is like your character. It's deep. It's complex. But it's also simple. Your word has been proclaimed. Your truth has been read. It's been revealed. And now our responsibility is to obey it. But Lord, we know that even even that is a gift of grace because it's by your spirit And not by our might or our ability or our wherewithal or our will. Lord, it it comes as we submit to you and walk with you. And we pray for that today. We live in a hurting, confused world. So help us, I pray, to be quick to speak for the healing and the peace that's found in Christ. For the clarity and the truth that is found in the gospel. And help us to be people of that word, people of that truth. Thank you that we have a king in Jesus. Saul's not it. David will be a lot better, but he's not it either. It's in you, Jesus. So help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And trust you in all these things. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. I'll be down front here to pray with you, receive you, serve you as I can as we close in worship. Let's stand together and praise the Lord. I come.